time and the situations that we find ourselves in our lives. What a comfort it is to know that you are the one, Father. You are the one who gives us the grace that we need for every moment of every day. In our prayer right now, this morning, as we stand before you with our heads bowed, is that you would help us to set aside all of the things that would distract us from hearing your voice today. That we would be able to know your Holy Spirit's work in our hearts through your word. Take it and help us to understand it, Lord. Help us to, to hear what you are saying to us, that we might not just know your word, but that we might put it into practice in our lives. Father, would you do that for us today? We will be grateful, and we would thank you for that. In Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. A recent New York Times article observed that humility is not what it used to be. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before or not, but it seems like every time a, a politician or a celebrity or an athlete gets an award or recognition or a claim of some kind, one of the first things they say as they draw attention to themselves is, I'm so humbled to be here. I'm so humbled to receive this award. Uh, it's not all, all it used to be. Humility doesn't sound quite as humble as it used to. It's difficult to reduce what's happening in our world down to a single common denominator with the widespread corruption, with violence that is going on, with the immorality, everything that is happening in our communities, in our state, even in our country, in this world. But if we were to look at everything that's happening and we were to trace it all the way back to its root, I think we would find some commonality. I think the commonality that we would find is selfishness. Now we might call it self-focus. It's certainly deeply connected to pride, but it's not a new problem. In 1789, French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote a book, and if you've ever read, how many people have ever read a book? Okay, good. If you've ever read a book, a lot of times you know when you open the cover and maybe the first page, there's a dedication. And Rousseau wrote this book in 1789. He entitled it Confessions. And on the dedication, he wrote this. To me, with admiration that I owe myself. Now that, to me, sounds like something that you could read on Twitter or Instagram today. That was 1789. So we know that pride and selfishness and self-focus is not new. And we also understand that as a church... As Christ followers, for those of you that are here this morning, you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. You also know that we are not immune to this problem. We are not immune to the problem of focusing on ourselves, of our own desires, our own needs. And the reality is that God has given us a lot of things by which we should live life. He has given us intelligence. He's given us drive. He's given us abilities. He's given us a desire for significance. God has made us this way. He has made us to want to do and to want to accomplish. The problem is that when left to our own devices, we take these things that God has given us, these gifts, 
and we use them for ourselves instead of to glorify God. Now last week, if you were here with us, we talked about this amazing sacrifice that Christ has made for us on the cross. And the question for us this morning is, how do we respond to that sacrifice? How do we respond to the amazing, unbelievable love that God has shown to us through Christ on the cross? What kind of life should we lead? I want to suggest to you this morning that we honor God best by living a humble life. We honor God best by living a humble life. You see, humility is the opposite of selfishness. Now, some people think humility is thinking less of yourself. Some people think pride and self-focus and selfishness is saying, I am this, I'm more than everybody else thinks that I am. But humility is not just thinking less of yourself. Humility is not just developing a poor self-image. Humility is actually thinking of yourself less. See, the problem is we're selfish both ways. We're selfish when we think we are all that, and we're selfish when we think we're nothing and oh, boo-hoo, and woe is me. We, we take it on both ends of the spectrum. We're going to look in the book of James in chapter 4 this morning and see what God has to say about living a humble life. Now, once again, as we look at this passage this morning, we find ourselves at the crossroads of God's promises in our responsibilities. If you remember several weeks ago, Pastor Tim was talking about Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. And in those verses, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In the very next verse, he says, for God is the one who works in you to do his goodwill and pleasure. So which is it? Do I have a responsibility to work out my salvation? Or is God is the one who work, is working in me to develop me? Yes, both, right? A couple of three weeks ago, we looked at Philippians chapter 4. In one week, we said, we said, Paul told us to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the promise was, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's God's promise. He will guard our hearts and minds. But the very next week after that, we looked at the next verse, and what did Paul say? He said, you must guard your heart and mind by being careful what you think about. We're going to see that again here this morning. Last week we talked about the fact that God has given us this amazing gift of salvation. He has extended his grace to us, provided forgiveness for our sin. And all we need to do is trust Christ, to admit our sin, to trust him, to accept his gift of salvation, and he will save us and give us new life. But we're going to see here this morning that we are not saved to sit by passively. That's not the end of the story. So let's start by reading in James chapter 4 and verse 6. If you have your Bible there, turn with me to James 4. 
In verse 6, we're not going to take time to read the first five verses of the chapter, but if we did, we would see that this is what James is talking about. He's talking about the struggle of living the Christian life in this selfish world. James is going to tell us how that we need to do that. So James 4, 6, follow along as I read it for you. It says, but he gives more grace. That is God. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says... God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So a moment ago I said God has given us these incredible gifts. He's given us intelligence, ability, desire, drive for significance, all these things. And because God knows that we are still imperfect people, and he knows that we're still going to misuse and abuse the good gifts that he gives us, and we'll use it for our own selfish agenda, James says, he gives us more grace. And what does more grace mean? Well, more grace means God gave us grace at the cross. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. We did not deserve to be forgiven. We don't deserve to have new life. But God gives it to us. Why? What did we find out last week? Nobody remembers last week. Because of his love. Remember? That was the missing piece. That was the one fact we needed to find. Why would God do all this? Because of his love for us. So he's given us this grace on the cross, but James says he gives us more grace. Now, how many people have their little cheat sheet with all the Greek words that I've been teaching you over the past? Nobody has them written down. That means you have them all committed to memory. Good. Let's start out from a year and a half ago. What was the first one I gave you? Nobody remembers. Homologumina, right? Homologumina. Then there was Sikakopatheo. And then a couple of three weeks ago, we talked about Logizomai. We need to figure things out. We need to think about it. Does anybody remember the last one? The last one was the easiest one. Grace, I know why you remember charis, because charis means grace. That's cheating. Okay, well, I'm just happy somebody remembered something. Here's another one. This one is even easier than that. James says God gives us more grace. The word for more, the Greek word for more, is the word mega. M-E-G-A, just like we use it in English, that is a Greek word, mega. It means abundant. In other words, God's grace for us that he extends to us on the cross through Jesus Christ so that we can have salvation and new life, that's not the end of his grace. James says, God gives us mega grace, more grace by which we can live our lives. And we need that grace. That's our only hope of honoring God with our lives is that he extends that grace to us. James goes further in the verse I just read for you. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, if you notice when I was reading that verse... James says, therefore, it says, the word it there refers to the scripture. This is a quote from Proverbs chapter 3, where Solomon says the very same thing. God opposes the proud. The word opposes means means to set in battle array. It means to stand against. Now, I don't know about you and how you live your life and how you feel on any given day of the week, but the last thing I need is God standing against me. 
But that's what James says here. God opposes the proud. God stops the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Now, before we go on, we need to be aware of this as we move forward, and that is that our humility does not earn us the grace of God because that's what we're going to figure out, right? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. How do I get the grace? I don't want God standing against me. I want the grace that he gives me. How do I get humble? But our humility does not earn us God's grace. Why doesn't it earn us God's grace? Because that's the very antithesis of grace. God's grace is him giving us what we don't deserve. So when we humble ourselves... We don't deserve his grace, but our humility puts us in the position to receive it. Does that make sense? Do you want me to go back over it again? Okay. I'm not getting much feedback here. So two and three theaters, does that make sense? We don't earn God's grace by being humble, but it puts us in the position to receive it. So what does James say? Verse 7a, the first part. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. So the first thing that we need to do is submit ourselves to God. Now, we must ask ourselves the question. If it's wrong to live for ourselves, who should we live for? Should we live for others? Should we live for our families? Should we live for the needy? Should we live to serve the church? Well, those things are good, but first... We need to live for God before we can do any of that. Submit yourself to God. That's the first thing James says that we have to do. The word submit sounds passive in English, but it's really a very active word. Submission does not mean, submitting ourselves to God does not mean that we, that we sit back and wait before any move that we could possibly make in our lives, but rather it means that we arrange our lives under the direction of God. For about 10 years of my life, from the time I was 12 until the time I was about 22, I lived for basketball. That's all I wanted to do was play basketball. All I wanted to do from 5 to 12 was play baseball, and then we moved to New Brunswick, and they didn't have baseball for kids my age, and so I switched to basketball, and I played junior high and high school, and I played when I was in Bible college. I loved it. And every week, I would go to practice, and my coach, I had a series of coaches over those 10 years, the coaches would teach us how to play. They would teach us to run the plays, teach us to dribble better, to pass better, to shoot better, to guard, to play defense better. But when we went into the game, the coach stood on the sidelines and we were out in it. Now, if I was playing point guard and somebody passed me the ball inbounds and I caught the ball, I didn't stand there and look at my coach and ask him what to do. Why? Because I knew what to do. Because I'd been listening to him all week. So as soon as I got the ball, I started to push it up the floor and start the play. Pass off to the guy that was open. Set a pick. Get somebody else open. That's what we would do. And that's how it is when we submit ourselves to God. Submitting ourselves to God doesn't mean we just sit there and wait for God to make all these movements 
Submitting ourselves to God means we put ourselves under his direction. We learn from him. That's why we're here on a Sunday morning. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have classes on Monday night. So that we can know what God's word says. So as we live life, we can move forward in the principles that we know to be true. That's how we submit ourselves to God. Now certainly a large piece of submission to God is obedience. But we fully submit to him when we obey in the times when it's difficult. See, sometimes we know the right thing to do and we struggle with whether or not we, what? Want to do it, right? I mean, you and I know sometimes we sin, we sin and we don't do the right thing. Sometimes we know the right thing, we just don't want to do it. But fully submitting to God is doing what he asks us to, even when it's not comfortable, even when it maybe even doesn't make full sense to us. That's how we humble ourselves before God. So number one is submit to God. Here's the second one. Look at 7b, the last half of the verse. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So number one is submit to God. Number two is resist the devil. Now I want you to make sure you understand and notice what order these things are in. We cannot resist the devil if we're not fully submitted to God. We don't have the strength to do it ourselves. Now, it's interesting to me that James says that when we resist the devil, he flees from us. There are four times when the Apostle Paul is writing that he tells us to flee. He tells us to flee from sin. Here James says when we resist, the devil will flee. If you remember back in the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph. Joseph was put in charge of everything that was happening in Potiphar's house, the Egyptian ruler. And one day Potiphar's wife came and tempted Joseph to immorality. What did he do? Did he stick around and debate it, discuss it, try to figure it out, reason with her? No, he left. It says he ran. And James is challenging us here that we need to resist the devil. Now, I want you to understand that resisting is active. We cannot just sit in front of temptation. If you've got the television on and something comes on that's extremely violent or has terrible language in it, or shows scenes of immorality, the best way to resist it is to do what? Shut it off. Leave the room if you don't have control of the TV. The best thing to do is not sit there and close your eyes and say, I'm not going to look at it. Resisting Satan is active, not passive. We are not strong enough to sit in the face of temptation and say, we're not going to do it. But of course, we have Christ in us. We have the new life that he gives us at salvation. And Satan cannot stand up to that, to God's power. And that's why James says that when we resist, he will flee from us. When we resist, he must seek another opportunity. When we do not resist, then Satan camps out. It's easy to do this in our minds, isn't it? You might say, well, I would never go to that physical place. I would never do that physical, actual thing. But in our minds, 
We have a tendency to go to those places all the time. It's so much easier to do that. Nobody even knows that we're there. James says we must resist that. We must flee from that so that he will flee from us. We must live in the power that God gives to us, that grace he gives to us to live a life that's honoring to him. Look at verse 8. James goes on. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and here's the third thing, draw near to God. Literally, come close to him, approach him. How do we come close to God? John chapter 4 verse 24 says God is spirit. How do we come close to him? I can't close to him the same way I can come close to Davy. He's right here in front of me. So how do I come close to God? I come close to God by doing what we're doing here this morning, by gathering together to worship. As Tara was leading us in worship this morning, that's what I was thinking about. I was, I was thinking, you know, I can worship God on my own. I can worship God by myself. But how much better to come together with the body of Christ, to set aside everything that is always distracting us, and to worship him together. We can draw close to God by serving Him. We can draw close to God by seeking His help, by asking for His assurance. What James is talking about here is maintaining this relationship, not maintaining it like I got to fight so that it doesn't go away. But the only way that I grow in my relationship with God is if I continually draw close to Him. And with the invitation, I want you to notice... With the invitation comes a promise. He will draw near to us. Think about that. We have a tendency, I don't know if you do or not, but I do. Sometimes when I get to a certain passage of Scripture, I just have a tendency to just breeze right through, especially if it's something that I've read many, many times. But think about what James is saying, that if we draw near to God, that he will draw near to us. God, almighty God, have you read the book of Genesis? Have you seen what God has done there, what he did there? By the sound of his voice, he said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be trees, and there were trees. Let there be rocks and land, and there was. That's the power that God commands. And yet James says, when we draw close to him, he will draw close to us can have that relationship. Several times in God's word, he says this, I will be their God and they will be my people. What a promise that we have that God gives to us. Closeness brings something special to a relationship and we have this privilege to be close to God himself. I want you to look at the next part of verse 8. James continues, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So the fourth thing that James challenges us to do is to purify himself, and I, or purify ourselves. And I want you to see there that this is another effect when we draw close to God. Because he is a holy God, because he is perfect, because he has no sin, 
When we draw close to him, his holiness shines a light on our sin. Closeness to his holiness should prompt a desire to confess our sin. Now, I want to ask you something here. If I take this bottle of water like this, and I go like this, why does water come out? Because I'm shaking it. That's actually not why water comes out. Water comes out because there's water in the bottle. Here's what we do with our sin. We excuse it. Oh, I sinned because of such and such that was going on. You don't, you don't understand how much pressure I'm under. You don't understand the circumstances. You don't, you don't understand how strong the temptation was. There was nothing I could do. We sin for one reason. Because we have sin in our hearts. And that's true of every single one of us. Paul says, or James says rather, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify our hearts. We need to purify ourselves because of the things that we do and because of the things that we think. Our hands and our hearts. When we're close to other people, we compare ourselves to them. We look around at our friends, we look at our family members, and we say, hey, you know, I'm not, doing too, I'm not doing too bad. I'm not so far from God. I can still see him. I can still reach out and grab him if I need to. But to receive God's grace, we not only need to be near him, but we must be pure. Closeness to God opens our eyes to our sinfulness. In 1 John chapter 1, John says this, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will purify us. He goes on in the next chapter and says, If anyone sins, John, 1 John 2, 2, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, my friends, God wants nothing more from you and from me, those of us who profess to be Christ followers. He wants nothing more than for us to be pure before him, to have our hearts washed clean. That needs to happen on a regular basis. James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Can I challenge you this morning? As you sit here, and as you think about where you are with God, how close am I to God? Have I purified myself? Do I need to ask his forgiveness? Do I need him to cleanse my heart? James challenges us here and says, be careful, double-minded one. What is he referring to? He's talking about our integrity. It's incredibly easy for us to say, hey, I'm good. I'm in a good spot with God. I'm all set. 
everything's taken care of, and to harbor sin in our hearts. Scripture contains many warnings about hypocrisy. We need to be very careful that what's coming out of our mouths is matching what is inside our hearts. Purify yourself. Look at verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Here's the fifth and last thing that James challenges us with. Challenges us with, he says, we need to lament for our sin. We need to lament for our sin. We're not very good at this in our culture. We don't lament very much. In the Jewish culture, lamentation was a big thing. They were very demonstrative. If you've ever read in the Old Testament there, and it says that they put on sackcloth and ashes, um, that's not a figure of speech. I mean, they would literally take their clothes off and they would put on this, this rough burlap material and they would put ashes on their heads to show their sorrow for their sin. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's not talking about grieving because of losing someone that you loved or something difficult happening in your life. If you look at the context, he's talking about mourning for our sin. We have a choice. We can laugh at sin now and mourn at judgment later, or we can mourn for our sin and rejoice for God's grace later. Remember, we all have sin in our hearts. Every one of us. And the question is, how do we respond when you are, we are confronted with our sin? How do you respond? When you're sitting here and I'm talking or Tim is teaching and somebody says something about examining our hearts, how do you respond? When you go home and you open your Bible and you're reading something and, and it pierces your heart, how do you respond? When someone's talking about a friend they have who's struggling with this issue and you know in your heart that you struggle with the same thing, what do you do? Do you laugh at it? Do you shrug it off? Do you say it's no big deal? Do you protect it? hide it. Sometimes we do that. I read a story uh, online a, a few months ago. This little 12-year-old girl in New York City was being hailed as a hero. She had a little container of chicken McNuggets from McDonald's. And a guy came up to her and demanded that he give her the McNuggets. And she refused. <laughs> And she turned and walked away. This guy followed her. This is a true story. Followed her and drew a gun and pointed it at her and demanded the McNuggets. She slapped his hand away and kept walking. Now later they arrested the guy and charged him. She's being hailed as a hero. I'm reading that story and I'm saying, girl... Give up the McNuggets. They are not that valuable. In fact, don't ever go on YouTube and search for how McNuggets are made. Or maybe you should if you have a McNugget problem because you won't eat them again. She risked her life for a handful of chicken nuggets. That's what we do sometimes. We protect our sin. 
We clean up other things around it to make sure things don't look too bad. It looks kind of neat. If anybody's looking at us from the outside, hey, that dude's doing pretty good. But we have something inside. We protect it. We hide it. We rationalize it. We make excuses. But James says we need to lament for our sin. We need to sorrow for our sin. Look at the language that James uses here. Be wretched and mourn and weep for our sin. When was the last time you wept for your sinfulness before God? I'm sure you know what John Newton said in his song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that what? Saved a wretch like me. We don't use those words to describe ourselves anymore. Why don't we? Because everybody in the world tells us we need to love ourselves. James says as we draw closer to God, we will be made more aware of our sinfulness which will result in a truly repentant heart. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, purify yourself, lament for your sin. He says, and God will lift you up. Don't we want that? Do you want that? For God to lift you up? For God to give you grace? For God to give you strength so that you can live your life in a way that honors him. So that you can enjoy what he has promised for those that walk with him. Why don't we do that? I want to suggest to you that we are so terrified. That if we do not live our lives in pursuit of our own needs and our goals and our own reputations and ambitions. That we'll never have or be anything. God says, let me worry about that. Humble yourself. If you're a true disciple of Christ, live a humble life. This is what God is calling you. He's calling you to humility. He's calling you to set aside yourself and and your self-focus and your your self-importance. I want you to see the promise. If you don't remember anything else that we talk about this morning, see the promise that God gives grace to the humble and understand that you need grace. Every one of you needs grace. I need grace. If selfishness and pride are the root of all sin... I want to suggest to you that humility is the root of all righteousness. Humility diffuses arguments. Humility allows us to handle unfair treatment. It allows us to process criticism without losing it. Humility allows us to reject retaliation and leave things with the Lord. My prayer needs to be, Lord, I need you. I need your grace. If you're not a Christ follower here this morning, well, humility is what God requires from you too. 
In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3, he makes it very clear. Jesus himself tells us that unless we humble ourselves, we will never see the kingdom of heaven. That's a promise. There must be humble admission of your guilt and repentance for your sin and a calling out to God for grace. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ, you need to call out to God in humility for his grace. And I would love to talk with you about that after the service. I'll be right up here. Come up here and find me. Without humility, you will not see God. That is his promise. We can look everywhere. And if you're like most people, you have looked everywhere. And you will never find anyone like God. You will never find anyone who will extend his love to you and extend his grace to you. Nothing is better than his grace. He turns shame into rejoicing. He turns guilt into innocence. He turns mourning, lamenting for our sin into rejoicing. We want to give thanks to God for his grace this morning. Will you join us as we sing this song in praise of him? Christ didn't come to this earth and suffer abuse and die on the cross so that we could go to church for an hour every week. It's not what he died for. He shed his blood and gave us new life and he wants it all. He wants our lives. I want to encourage you this morning to live in the light of his grace. If you need to repent, repent. If you need to humble yourself, humble yourself. Humble yourself now. Or surely he will humble you later. That's the promise of God's word. Father, thank you for the invitation to come to you to receive your grace. Well, we desperately need it every day of our lives. I I am sure that every person here this morning needs your grace. There are some here that may need your grace because they have never trusted Christ as their Savior. They've never repented of their sin. If that is the case, Father, will will you humble them and may they humble themselves before you and trust you for your grace and salvation new life. For the rest of us, Lord, who are, who are walking with you, Father, keep us close. Help us to draw close to you, to submit ourselves, to lament for our sin, to get it all out into the open, to ask your forgiveness in your cleansing of our hearts. Thank you for these times, Lord, when we can focus our attention on you and take it off of ourselves. I pray that as we go out from here, we might know your grace. We might not soon forget the things that we have heard. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for coming, folks. Have a great week.